0: And welcome uh, as we uh, go through another uh, exciting uh, class in the bunker. Uh, This is kind of a a special class in the bunker uh, for those of us that uh, live in Texas. We've gone through a period of time here where we not just had the pandemic, but because of uh, sub-freezing temperatures, Uh, Texas never sees zero degrees with a 15-degree wind chill Uh, And so we are a plethora of broken pipes and uh, frozen cold houses, but really warm hearts and an incredible amount of uh, gratitude to those that have been out and helping take care of neighbors and things like that. This is a historic uh, week uh, around here in Texas. Um, And we've survived and we're here and it's actually warming up. So we're, we're pretty grateful at the moment. Now, as we get started today, welcome to all of you who uh, may be joining us uh, for the first time or uh, repeat uh, people. Let us know where you're coming from, as always, and thanks. And just a reminder that these classes are always posted at uh, LDS Class Discussions on YouTube, uh, where you can find them there. So thanks for coming. Let's go ahead and get started. Now, we're in the midst of a two-part class here where We started uh, last week trying to solve and talk about what has been traditionally a very age-old theological conflict and a battle between how do we reconcile Jesus and the teachings of Jesus and who he is and what he taught in terms of love and compassion and forgiveness and all of that in the New Testament and then square that with him being Jehovah of the old and we have the law of Moses and destruction of Canaanite cities and and, uh, all of that. And that has been a continual battle and we don't have all the answers for exactly how that works uh other than the fact that last week we did spend some time and say one of the sources we think where this god of vengeance is going to clash with uh, jesus of the new uh, comes from how the the old testament was translated how we came to have it in our hands uh, because it went through a lot of hands and a lot of iterations and a lot of translations to get to here so, part of what we noticed was that, uh, as it turns out, much of the Old Testament is written after what we call the purge of Josiah, where the Deuteronomists, those people at the time of uh, the Josiah purge, are taking a look at what documents they have, what law that they had, and whate- for whatever it was, we talked about how Josiah had cracked down on any other voices other than the one God—that means wiping out uh, Asherah sw- shrines all over uh, Israel, uh, along with just trying to destroy uh, Baal worshippers and and those fertility groves. But in doing that, they also wipe out uh, Asherah, who is known as the mother of heaven, uh, and then they also wipe out any voices of ongoing revelation to prophets. Uh, and so that any prophets who are seeing visions are automatically a false prophet. So what happened is, is they were dealt very harshly uh, and, and they were seen as breaking the law that Josiah was trying to put together. So, for whatever documents are now available, now the Babylonian exile comes in. Uh, they really don't have a single place where, where these records are recorded. So, because of that, it is now the, the scribes in Babylon try to write down the books. Uh, and we think a lot of the composing of Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus happens right now in Babylon. Just as Lehi and his family are leaving, they're going to start the process of writing these books. But they're going to do it with a backdrop of vengeance. Vengeance against their city. Jerusalem, the temple, is destroyed. Babylon is a uh, advanced city, but it's also very warlike in the way that it conquers. And these wonderful people are finding themselves on the receiving end of all of this anger and vengeance, and it, it seems to come out uh, in the writings that, that they're going to do. Uh, so, so the bottom line ends up being this. And so it, it, makes, it makes for a complicated story. Uh, the parts of the Old Testament we know are inspired, uh, especially when we take a look at the Joseph Smith translations and that, that add to what it is that were, was removed. But we also know that other parts feel cold uh, and appear to be in direct opposition to this Jesus of Nazareth. And so that puts some of the, the Old Testament in the category of some questionable origins. And the only thing that we can do is listen with our heart. And if it just doesn't seem to be what we, how we come to see Jesus and the loving acts of heavenly parents, then you know that there's probably something there that we are not going to have access to, but look at it with a certain amount of question uh, without automatically assuming that this is, this is Jesus and he's doing these harsh things. Your heart is going to probably tell you otherwise, that there's some other story here that needs to be told. So then, from there, then we're going to get the Septuagint, the, the writing, these Hebrew writings that are going to be then written into the Greek. We're going to get those about three or 400 uh, uh, B.C. Uh, and then we roll into the New Testament period. Now, this is where you start to see this stark contrast. Because when we get the New Testament, the very first books that are, are out there, the very first writings are coming from Paul about uh, 45, 48, 52 A.D. And his stuff, written, written first, it strongly is teaching against vengeance and against grudge. And, and for it, those that are wanting to be like Jesus and like uh, these Christians that are developing and you get this pushback against vengeance. Uh, Paul is going to say that you are no more strangers but fellow citizens with the saints, and we're going to, everybody is going to gather together, bond and free, male and female, uh, and we're going to forgive and let go because that is the law of Christ we are now under. Now, we get more background to Paul because he's never really quoting the Gospels because they're not written yet. But within the next decade, and we get into the mid-60s, A.D. 60, 65, uh, after the fall of Jerusalem, now come the Gospels. And what we start seeing in the Gospel writings of uh, first uh, Mark and then the other writers, Matthew and Luke, and then followed by John, you get this flowing, beautiful uh, stories and parables. And we're going to use a couple of them in just a second. Flowing with the teachings of Jesus, with their emphasizing mercy and forgiveness you know if a man asks you of a coat give him your cloak also and if he wants you to go for a mile go too you know and uh, you're going to forgive 70 times 7 and you get this vengeance less uh, revenge less grudge less forgiveness of moving forward on how to live your life uh, and again, it just seems so starkly out of step with the Old Testament. And a good example, even for those uh, that are doing things that they shouldn't do, and they begin to gather to uh, John the, the Baptizer, John the, immer- the Immerser uh, is kind of the common language there at the River Jordan, and they're going to find him teaching things like this. John John the Baptist is going to call out, come to your senses and be immersed. It's Matthew 3 2, the literal translation. Come to your senses and be immersed in this mikvah, this cleansing waters, so that you can be prepared, because the kingdom of God is at hand, and be prepared to meet him and join with him. And so you're going to come you're going to come to your senses. You're going to turn around have a change of heart and see things differently. Come to your senses. He's preaching. okay? Now, these writings get compiled. Uh, Constantine uh, establishes the, the church in the entire Empire about you know, 300 AD. And what do they do? Back to vengeance. When they started to translate and they're going to start to uh, put together a a church based on these writings, they go back to vengeance uh, in an amazing sort of way. Um, And so what happens then in the fourth century that Jerome uh, is asked by the church to translate uh, the, the Septuagint and the writings in Greek into the Vulgate, which is Greek into Latin, uh, Latin being read by the priests and, uh, and the authorities of the church. Not the common people, so not so much, but Latin is, is their language. And so as he's writing the Vulgate, he does a, uh, a watershed thing and, and I really want to focus on this today because I think this is far more powerful and it's powerful enough that uh, Terrell and Fiona Givens have been writing extensively currently about this hinge moment in time when things change dramatically. He translates th- that those writings of Matthew come of uh, John the Baptist come to your senses and be cleansed. Jerome into Latin is going to translate, come to your senses to do penance. In English, that would come out to repentance. In a sense, the, the foundational word for repentance, we talk about, we do repent or repent. We're talking about repentancing, where you're going to have to do something, not, not to come to your senses, but you're going to have to do a certain amount of acts of contrition in order to earn in some way that forgiveness because now it's going to not so much be about for come to your senses as much as it's going to be about forgiveness that That phrase to do penance," when he says "Repent and be baptized rather than come to your senses and be cleansed," has two major Implications in how all of Christianity rolling forward is going to see what happens when we sin, and and the first is going to be what happens is is that it changes the focus from to uh, sinful acts, not just a change of thought and a change of heart, but it but sinful behavior, which is going contrary to the laws of God that is going to produce in a, in a God of an angry response on a part of a God whose laws have been violated and he is harmed, his honor is harmed by our, our uh, rebellious, willful acts, and that is sin. Now they, And it's a laser in on sin as the problem. So, that focus with with the Vulgate is going to change it to sin, and then how do you, if you have now committed a crime, how do you become cleansed of this vulgarity that you have taken on and appease an angry God? Well, one of the reasons why they went with due penance is that it now placed that cleansing process in the full hands of the church and so it be in the hands of a bishop at confessional the act of contrition would be to confess your guilt your sins forgive me father for i have sinned it's been 7 days since my last confession you know and and what it's going to require at that point is that the the priest is going to give them acts of penance in order to cleanse themselves so that's how we're going to get uh, you're going to have to repeat Hail Marys and Our Fathers and, and, and those kinds of things and then even for those of your relatives who have passed on who died obviously with having committed sinful acts and we don't know how much Uh, penance they did before they died so they're kind of sitting out there they obviously can't go to God because they're still tainted criminals with sin so we're going to do uh, acts of indulgences where the living can provide some penance that will help get their loved ones out of limbo faster and speed up that process to get them out, out of hell and we don't know how far or how long they were in hell but this will help get them there And now there is on one side this something as Latter Day Saints that we would recognize and that is the ability of the living to do something for their kindred dead but what it, what it, what it was really based on though was uh, being able to do the acts of contrition and penance To get them out of hell and that was the very thing this idea that it was about uh, these acts that need to be paid for and the indulgences and even being able to pay ahead Uh, think mardi gras where you can actually plan on ahead that you're going to do bad stuff and and do and sin but have a way to be uh, clean shortly after now, it was this very process that drove the reformers nuts. So, uh, so when uh, Luther is going is to put up his list of grievances on the Wittenberg door, part of it is a sense of this, these indulgences and that all repentance or penance has to go through the church and through the priest who can control all of that. And so the reformers, Luther and Calvin said, let's cut the church out of this and make it back between man and God. Which (laughs) sounds good, right? This repentance should be between us and our maker. But they actually doubled down on the angry God. He was now even more angry and man was even more sinful. He is a wicked vessel and forever will be. And so, uh, yes, Calvin and Luther split with the Catholic Church over priests granting absolution of sins. But now, w- how do we take care of the sins? Because we're still sinful and always will be when they took out this, the, the Catholic sacraments. Now, how do we get rid of this sinful thing? Well, again, they made them even more wicked. Man will never be righteous he is really just wicked and so what they did is they, they declared men and women forever sinful lawbreakers and God even more angry, what do we do then, well here's here was the solution to that and again it is it is uh, affected Christianity going forward and brothers and sisters it is part of the the, the uh, middle age Christianity reformation that we carried as baggage into our current church. Because what they did is they said mortals would need to depend on a heavenly Father who would punish his, son, his uh, sin, the, he'd punish his son in their stead. So with a law broken, someone would have to appease this angry, God and that was and so this loving justice of God that we learn with Abraham and Enoch this weeping God is turned into an angry God that has to be appeased and somebody has to pay and he's going to take out in a sense his wrath on his innocent son And that's going to be seen as repentance, and then that's going to taint how we look at the word atonement, because atone is going to be atoning for uh, all of these uh, sins to appease God, rather than atonement, which we're going to talk about in a second, as a way to heal us of our wounds and be made whole again. It got completely twisted. With vengeance very much in the background, providing the back spotlight to say, "Vengeance and anger and revenge must be um, paid somewhere." You hear that even with Joseph Smith, when uh, when he's hearing God say, uh, "Vengeance is mine, and I will repay." Well, Joseph would have heard heard kind of the possibility of a bit of an angry God at that point potentially. Rather than, vengeance is mine and I will heal them. That's how I do vengeance. Is I heal, not punish. This is a God that does not choose and does not want to punish. He wants to heal. Now, why is that so important in all of this? Well, again, if we're, if we're reading the Old Testament, and, we, and we're just listening and we're not reading the New Testament closely enough and we're just hearing ringing in our ears the, the Calvinistic waters that we can swim in and certainly our, our, our wonderful Christian brothers and sisters for, for them that this certainly exists uh, it comes down to a, a large problem of guilt we have a problem with guilt, and that this guilt comes from these underpinnings of this vengeance focus, guilt focus, criminal sin focused bent that has been there for so long, it's because when we focus on sin as a crime, repentance then become uh, uh, focuses on penal, penal penalties. There has to be a penalty. And we have to do penance. So, so in essence the beautiful healing atonement can be turned into something that has a criminal justice mindset. Somebody has to pay, darn it. Because otherwise the law is going unpunished. And if that's the case, then for us a, what should be a, simply a broken heart and a contrite spirit because we find ourselves more distant from, a loving, from loving parents instead it, it can easily be replaced with a focus on our performance and have we done enough to gain we don't, have we done enough penance have we done enough repentance to pay for the things that we have done and we're, going to, and, and we're trying to judge our acts of uh, restitution and that even finds its way into some of our restoration literature for certainly the Nephites struggled with this when they were seeing uh, a, a judgment bar and they were being judged according to their actions and wondering if they had done enough or if they were going to fall short Well, that was their understanding at that time. And in some ways, that was very much a very Calvinistic way of looking at it. That's one of the reasons why, as I mentioned, I think, in another class, that not too long ago, a a Baptist priest uh, or a uh, Baptist pastor read through the Book of Mormon and says, there's nothing in here that offends. There's nothing. (laughs) <laughs> this is, Baptists should love the Book of Mormon because there's nothing here contradictory to what we believe, and they love the part of the you know there's a judgment bar and uh, you know and you either go to heaven or hell and and have we done enough and our and we carry a lot of that with us. So in a sense, the result is wondering if we have done enough in earning God's mercy and and His. Dis- over the top of our, his desire to have a more loving relationship with us. Now again, brothers and sisters, think about this if you have been parents, how you would approach the idea of sin as parents. And you may try and provide some kind of discipline that helps people and kids move forward to make sure that they don't keep repeating certain things, but what you're not looking for is uh, that one, one of our kids has really messed up badly, and that somehow the law can be taken care of by punishing another one of our kids. What parent does that? But what parents do is weep when we struggle. and has provided his son to conquer death and by death we can be resurrected and return to his presence and become partakers of eternal life Jesus conquered death God loves us and does not want to punish us with vengeance now to give, you an, to give you an example of, I think the battle that uh, we that we face in trying to understand that uh, Paul talks about looking forward with remorse over things that we have done, that is a driving force for us to do better, to be closer to our Maker, as opposed to guilt, which is constantly looking over our shoulder and beating ourselves up for our past. Good example of this get two 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 quick ones, and then we we will be done first of all, um, we have the parable of the prodigal son, which beautifully demonstrates how Jesus was taking a look at this and trying to frame it for his audience because remember we 've got this prodigal son that's going to sell off a third of the family inheritance so that he can then take the money and and spend it on wine, women, and song among the Gentiles. And then when there's a famine, he finds that he's in need. And then he's going to try and figure out a way to come back. And he says he's going to come back as a servant, meaning maybe I can come back as a servant and pay my way back into to my father's good graces again I have sinned I will be your servant and I will repay my debt and he walks back into that village with that idea in mind I, am a, I will be a servant he's practicing what he's going to say to dad and dad runs to him meets him and immediately casts aside all idea of being a servant and says to, says to his servants, put on his robe, put, on, put the ring on his finger, meaning he can transact business because it will have the seal on it, put shoes on his feet. That's what my heirs have. In other words, the father is saying this is not, not, this is not about you needing to pay your way back in. Kill the fatted calf, call the village to come and and enjoy this because my son was lost and now he's found. And I'm going to accept him with open arms. Now, if this son is going to come into this setting with a sense of remorse over what his foolish actions in selling part of the family land would be, he probably would go about trying to somehow find a way to maybe regain what he lost but it would come out of a sense of love and gratitude to his father, not out of a sense of guilt and fear that he's never going to do enough. Now, fascinating though in this story, you really have to ask, who is the true prodigal? Because this parable starts with the words, a man had two sons, and there is another son, the older son, who when he finds out about the party, and the fatted calf is going to say, Father, I have served you all these many years. Still putting himself in a service. I have earned the, the party. And I never got it. The son is seeking vengeance. For the son, he's still seeing this as a vengeance paradigm. And the and it turns out the older son is probably the, the uh, heavier case, the bigger prodigal. Now one other point of reference on this that I think is important. this story is told in, in the doorway, and go, go back and look. this is told in the doorway of Jesus' home in Capernaum, to Pharisees standing in the street, looking into the house and seeing sinners and publicans, tax collectors, eating at Jesus table and to them he's saying they were lost and now they're found I'm not here to punish them I'm here to love them back into my presence it is the Pharisees steeped in the law of Moses that would be looking for vengeance one other example um, and that is the, the classic case of the woman caught in adultery who was brought dragged into the temple plopped at the feet of the Savior with the Sanhedrin standing there and they're saying to him what should we do with her saying that you know, the law of Moses requires she should be stoned we don't know what Jesus wrote in the dirt but he did Probably something on the order of well the law the law says she should be stoned, but then Jesus turns it and says, "Those of you who are without sin, cast the first stone." And of course, then they melt back away. And Jesus turns to her and says, "Well, where's your accuser?" She says, "None, Lord. There's nobody here." He says, "Well, then I'm not accusing you either." Uh, go your way and sin no more. You are healed. She walks in up into that te- she's dragged into the temple. Identifying herself, recognizing who she is and everything that she's done. Accused by the crowd, by the mob. She walks out of the temple clean. Now, that is to say, though, because there are sometimes people say, "Well, wait a minute, she can't now be clean because she hasn't, you know, confessed to her bishop, and she hasn't done restitution, and she hasn't, you know, been in pain enough, and she has, she, she hasn't repented enough yet to be declared clean." And Jesus said, "No, I cleansed her on the spot. She is clean. I've forgiven her. I can do that." No question, as this woman comes down off the Temple Mount, that for her to continue on this path, she will need to change her life. She is going to have to take a look at any uh, bad habits or the ways that she sees herself. I mean, she still has a lot of work left to do as she rebuilds her life going forward. And she may have remorse over the decisions that she made. But Jesus would have cleansed her of the guilt saying, you're now clean. Go forward and sin no more. Change your life. No hint of vengeance. No hint of revenge. It's interesting that Joseph Smith, as we've said before, has said, said that uh, you will enter a heaven when you have no accusers and certainly Jesus will not be the accuser this process then one of beginning to perhaps move away from repentance as we have seen penance and repentance inst- instead of in-, in which should be more about Remorse and change and healing we're clean when we desire to be clean we are that doesn't automatically remove habits that need to be changed or inclinations, we may struggle with addictions we may struggle with a lot of things but when we desire to Remorse repentance, not out of a sense of vengeance that we need to be punished more. I think the way that we see ourselves changes dramatically. Let me finish with the words of, of Elder Holland, who said this You can change anything you want to change, and you can do it very fast. It is another satanic falsehood to believe that it takes years and years and eons of eternity to repent. It takes exactly as long to repent as it takes you to say I'll change and mean it. Of course there will be problems to work out and restitutions to make out of a sense of remorse but change, growth, renewal, repentance, and I would add healing can come for you as come for you as instantaneously as it did for Alma and the sons of Mosiah. Can we remove vengeance from God's repertoire? Can we remove punishment from our self-loathing that we beat ourselves up with and instead recognize that loving parents want us home. Loving parents want us home. And as fast as we can come to our senses and return, they will do everything that they can to facilitate that process. And bring us home and close to them. And then we can live the lives that they live. I bear you my testimony that God loves us and desires us to be with him. Let's allow that to happen. And I leave that with you in Jesus' name. Amen.